Hello, welcome to the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I'm Jeff Cranson. This is what I call a riff episode. It's been a while since I got together with my friend, Lloyd Brown, who was for many years the Director of Communications at the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. And that's how I got to know him. Uh, He's now with HDR Incorporated Consulting Firm. He's based in Phoenix, of all places, where it's just a little hot right now. Um, Lloyd, we haven't talked in a while. I thought maybe this would be a chance to just catch up on some random transportation topics because like me, you're interested in a lot of things and you read a lot and take in a lot. So thanks for taking time to be here. Let's start first by talking about how the Tigers are the best nine games below 500 team in baseball <laughs> and why your Dodgers are perennially in first place. And they uh, they did come on. They did make a climb after or toward the uh, all-star break. So um, I, I was happy to see that the young young players are coming forward and doing a good job for them. But Explain to me how the Tigers can have a, the combined no hitter and then you know continue to struggle the way they are. Yeah, it's really not about the pitching; it's about the hitting. You know, it's just a anemic offense. They've got a lot of they've got a few young people that I think are going to turn out to be big time ball players. A couple of them are starting to really shine, but they've got a lot of journeymen. And uh, you know, any given day, they 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 don't score and. Well, baseball's better when the Tigers have a good team on the field. So I hope they, they're able to continue to grow that. that well, point. we appreciate that. And I kind of wondered, since you're a lifelong Dodgers fan, how long it is you'll be in Phoenix before you adopt the D-backs because they're playing pretty well, too. <laughs> well, when the Dodgers come to town, it's like a Dodgers home game around here. So uh, the the legacy of Vin Scully and, and the old AM broadcast coming across the desert into Phoenix uh, lingers here and the fan base is really, really strong in Phoenix for the Dodgers. So I actually feel sorry for the Diamondbacks when the Dodgers come to town because it, uh, it can be overwhelming at times in the, in the, uh, uh, stadium to see all the Dodgers fans kind of drown out those that are there to root on the Diamondbacks. All right. Any of you kids listening to the podcast, I'll have Lloyd talk to you later and explain what AM is. <laughs> so First story that really caught my interest this week was uh, what Washington State is doing with road user charges. That's been much discussed in Michigan and and other states. Everybody knows that we're going to have to do something as we transition to EVs. And I mean, already it was a problem just relying on gas taxes because we're driving more efficient vehicles. Since you're lived much of your life in Washington State, um, do you think that there's something culturally there that makes people more amenable to this than maybe some other states? Is that part of what's going on there? I think some of that is the case uh, under the current governor and even the previous governor, Gregoire. Um, there has been uh, interest in investing in transportation and trying to make the economy uh, function better be, uh, with a good transportation system. So uh, there have been several gas tax uh, increases. There also was uh, there was a uh, a carbon uh, tax that that's either been floated or and it, I think it's just getting off the ground now. So there's they're they're investing in infrastructure, but still, if you're up in the northwest and and driving in, especially the Puget Sound area, 
there continue to be choke points and, and troublesome spots in, in the region that I think uh, can be troubling if you're looking into the future for growth and, and the economy and the environment up there. So, yeah, they want to continue to invest. And what you're seeing, too, is the influence of Oregon. Oregon had a road user charge study going back as far as the mid-2000s. They started looking into this and have done several pilots and have implemented different versions of it um, real early in the what I would call the evolution of a road user charge or vehicle miles tax. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much what's there. There's another influence as well, and it's the influence of the technology industry. Microsoft is there and other big tech firms are based there. And so you have this marriage between an interest in trying to resolve transportation issues, how it affects the environment, and then also bringing in the technology. And so it makes it a natural hotbed or place for this kind of analysis and research. Yeah, so that's what I kind of meant by the cultural component of this, that you are more likely to trust the technology, although it was interesting to me that they said the data that they found in this this pilot was that 70 percent of the people said they were satisfied with the process, the road user charge. But the, the same things came up there that come up everywhere else. And the first thing people cite is privacy and location, which still kills me because, you know, we all carry a phone that tracks us anyway. <laughs> so why they're worried about it in their cars. I, I mean, you've been dealing with this longer than I have in this this funding issue. I mean, as a as a journalist, I puzzled about it and explored it and wrote about it. But I mean, what do we do as a society as long as people say, I know we need to to spend more on roads? And then you say, okay, how about if we do this? Nope, don't want to do that. Well, how about if we do this? Nope, don't want to do that. So, I mean, is is are we going to acquiesce behind this eventually? Well, you and I have spoken a lot, Jeff, about the words we use to talk about various aspects of the transportation, you know, what we do in transportation. For instance, when we talk about crashes and people want to say they're accidents, and you and I both agree that, that, that there are no accidents, they're crashes. And it's important that we call it that way. I think, too, that there's a little bit of a language disconnect in how we talk about the transportation system. When we talk about tolled lanes versus uh, non-tolled lanes, they're often called, well, you're, they're free. Well, they're not, they're not free. You're paying for them. You've paid for them at the gas pump in most cases. And the reason why the gas tax was so popular when actually Oregon was the first state to institute a gas tax uh, was because it was an efficient way of collecting that tax. It was very, it, it did not cost the government very much to collect a fee uh, in the in the gasoline manufacturing and at the pump. So it was very efficient to collect that gas. And so uh, gas tax. So a lot of that money went directly back into the into the highway funds. I think what we're part of what we're facing is is people have this idea that 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 what they have existing is paid for and that it was free and now you're going to ask them to pay more for something and if they're going to pay more they need more and so you see a lot of uh, instead of HOV lanes now you see high occupancy toll lanes they're so they're giving you an additional service to go along with it there's an added feature there's an improvement that is being paid for with these toll collection uh, uh, projects. Um, th- that, that, I think, ultimately is where we are. By the way, road user charge, vehicle mile traveled, it's, it's great technology. It's continuing to evolve, and I think that you're going to see rapid in, uh, evolution of this here in the next uh, four or five years. 
um, because the technology is becoming so sharp and the and the vehicles themselves are becoming even smarter than they already are. Um, but I, I don't think that people uh, understand how much it costs to actually collect that fee. There's more overhead, there's more paper processing, not paper in the real sense, but there's right. more financial processing that goes along with that. And so that efficiency that was in the collection of the gasoline tax isn't necessarily there in some of the vehicle miles traveled. So while we try and replace dollar for dollar, it's actually going to cost us more, which is ultimately going to be mean that we have to collect more and not as much is going to get back into the transportation system. So uh, it, it, it's what we need to do for a, a lot of reasons. Equity is one of them. Uh, it also allows us freedom away from a carbon-based fuel system and gets us into something that's more um, uh, appropriate for a non-carbon-based fuel environment. But it's not without its risks and, and challenges as we go Well, forward. I think the, the most fundamental point you made, though, is about the misperception about what free is and probably – you know, because in the earliest days we had toll roads and, and if they weren't a toll road, they were called a freeway. And it reminds me of, you know, debates in Congress about free college tuition. It's like, well, it's not free. <laughs> Nothing's free. The professors <laughs> wouldn't get paid if it was free. So I, that, I think that, that's, that's right. We've we've done focus groups. I think you and I've talked about this before, Jeff, where uh, we, we've done focus groups uh, back in Washington, D.C. when I was there. And we would ask the question about vehicle miles traveled or collecting a, a fee for miles traveled. And, and the focus group would immediately shut down. And then as we began to explain the program in, in the next three or four follow-up minutes, then all of a sudden there was more openness to it. And then there were more questions about it. So there really is a steep learning curve. Even with my own um, my, my own wife, I was explaining it to her years ago. And she goes, well, I don't, I'm not going to do that. And I go, so we talked about it, and and what she misunderstood at this core level was that we were going to put a vehicle miles tax on top of an existing gas tax, not that it would replace. And when I said that no, it would just replace dollar for dollar, she goes, "Oh well, then I don't care. You know, as long as I'm paying what I'm paying now, I don't care." So, so can you can you talk to 330 million people? Yeah, well, that would be that would be the way to do it. Um, if we had a maybe if we had a budget the size of of uh, some of our major brands out there, we we would have a fighting chance. But so far, no one's wanting to fund that kind of uh, public engagement and outreach program. <laughs> no, I mean, it really does come down to those kinds of conversations, though. It's like just, you know, sit down and explain it and, yeah, knock down the misperceptions. So another thing that's interested me, um, but I've been paying attention to, and I, I think this is on the periphery for a lot of people, but they're really not tuned into it. Uh, e-bikes are are really taking off um, around here, and I'm sure it's probably true there, although not as many people probably want to ride a bike right now, whether it's electric or not, in Phoenix when it's 112 degrees. Um, but you're a cyclist. Have you given any thought to an e-bike? I have uh, I have seen a lot of e-bikes. I was out in the desert recently when it was you know, the temperatures were much cooler, so it was apparently it wasn't that recently. It was a few months ago. And I'm riding along, and, I'll, and this person came just zooming by me, and I realized that they were on a, a very fancy, tricked-out mountain bike that had an electric motor on it. <laughs> so I've seen them. They look fun, um, and and I understand the value of it. That it, They can really provide some mobility for people who maybe can't uh, still – um, you know, pedal or perform at the same level that they used to, or wouldn't try it without some sort of assistance. But I, I, uh, 
I think that there's there's real opportunity there. It's not ever going to replace completely those of us who who like to get out on the roads and and pedal our legs off. But um, I think that I think that there's good reason for why people want to use them. Um, so that brings me to the issue of the day, which is these increasing reports of the fires, and a lot of it seems to be linked to cheaper batteries and battery care. But uh, I don't know. Are you hearing much about that in the in the West? Not- not in the cycling community per se, and you know I do I spend a lot of time reading uh, uh, about about bicycles and cycling and and that sort of world. So it's not something that has bubbled up per se because I think the people that are cycling seriously and are using battery assistance are probably paying a, more of a premium for those bicycles. Uh, the article that you're referencing point out that uh, points out that. A lot of the the fires are are anecdotally being blamed on uh, cheap batteries and, and low cost uh, bicycles uh, and, and electric vehicle options coming over from manufacturing in Asia that maybe are are lower value, lower production quality, and and leading to some trouble there. Um, not unlike the hoverboards we saw maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago that. You know, some of those came over and people were, you know, their Christmas trees were going up in flames and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and that's what that, that TechCrunch story pointed out, why they're more likely to explode and their lower quality manufacturing. And I thought it was interesting. It said if the battery companies cut corners or use cheap materials, there's more likely to be a defect that can lead the cells to expand and bulge. So if they bulge, they burst, which can cause thermal runaway, <laughs> which is a good way of saying fires. So, so Jeff, extrapolate that out just a little bit. I I also um, am an old uh, uh, gearhead, and I really used to like to work on combustion engines, cars, and uh, under the shade tree with my with my stepdad. Uh, we very likely would grab used batteries and throw them in an electric vehicle if we had one, just to get them back on the road. I think as the electric vehicle market matures, you're going to see more uh, electric vehicle repair, uh, battery replacement services, and things of that nature. So what I thought when I read that article in TechCrunch is, boy, we should be watching the electric vehicle, the the car market, uh, as we get into used cars and we get into people looking to extend the life of their electric vehicles, there are going to be more uh, more shade tree mechanics, more people offering services, and, and perhaps some issues going on there. You know, that reminds me that in the earliest days, um, I remember a guy named Jay Hakes, who was the, the head of the Energy Information Office in D.C., and later he went to work for the Jimmy Carter Library, ran the Jimmy Carter Library in Atlanta. Really smart guy, and he wrote a book probably 20 years ago called uh, a declaration of energy independence and talked then about the possibility that, you know, we would just pull into the version of a gas station, a battery station and just swap out our battery and keep mm-hmm. going. And then you wouldn't have a lot of time charging. Um, but that idea never really seemed to catch on and hasn't caught on. There are, there are some, there, there recently was a article about a pilot project coming to the United States. It's something that's been, tried. I know um, there's been some v- VC uh, capital invested in the idea. I think over in the Middle East and Europe, they've they've had some demonstration projects of that very type of thing. Uh, you have to get into the, a kind of manufacturing environment where you have a standardization of battery 
the battery uh, the batteries themselves are easily accessible. So there's some there's some you know systematic manufacturing uh, concepts that would need to be in place for it ultimately to work very well. But uh, it's it's a, it's an idea with merit, and people certainly are are interested in it. So the next thing you'd be talking about is uniformity in cords that charge our phones. <laughs> oh, Apple. We will continue the conversation right after a quick break. Avoid the wait and remember the Mackinac Bridge is closed to traffic Labor Day for the annual bridge walk starting at 6.30 a.m. Spend some extra time in the UP or take your time heading north since the bridge won't reopen to traffic until noon to allow walkers to clear the bridge. For more information, head to MackinawBridge.org slash walk. The, the other topic that I thought was really interesting that was in the news this week, transportation news, um, was that study on slower driving. And it's not surprising that pedestrians fare better on roads where people drive slower. But what was stunning to me, because I spent a lot of time in Chicago, was that Chicago drivers were cited as tend- tending to drive slower. As they said out of this data that more than 60% of the city's major pedestrian roadways have average vehicle speeds under 25 miles per hour compared to the national average, which is 36%. So I I don't know. What did you make of of that? And I know it leaves some questions to be answered, but um, I got to believe pedestrian advocates are saying, yes, you know, more, more curbs, more, more pinch points, you know, anything that calms the traffic, uh, please. Absolutely. And and what you're seeing is some of these major cities, New York, D.C., San Francisco, Boston, all were equally uh, all, all also showed equal um, percentages of, you know, 60 percent or higher where their arterial or their surface streets had had the slower speeds. Um, the, the there are a few things that that contribute to to the severity of injuries for pedestrians. One is the speed of the vehicle that they get hit by, and the other is the size of the vehicle that they get hit by. And, uh, you know, the, the vehicle manufacturers are continuing to make larger and larger vehicles. Uh, and so uh, even, even battery-powered you know, electric vehicles, they're heavy they, they, because the batteries themselves weigh so much. So that's not necessarily something that that cities and communities can can make a difference on in the short term, but they can change their speed limits. And so D.C., I I don't know, it's been a number of years ago, five or six years ago, uh, just said if it's not an arterial road, it's going to be 20 miles per hour. If it's not posted, uh, then it's going to be 20 miles per hour. And and the whole goal was to try and calm traffic and slow people down, especially through neighborhoods. And if you've driven in Chicago, you know there's some pretty narrow streets. You probably shouldn't be driving over five to ten miles an hour anyway on some of these narrow streets through some of the neighborhoods. People park on both sides. Kids are playing. Uh, it can be pretty crazy. So why would you have that at 25 or 30 miles an hour when you know it just makes sense to go, you know, slower? Yeah, I just I think that some some changes could result from this data. I mean, some changes are already happening. People are focusing on this. Um, and there's the distracted driving element too. That uh, you know, pedestrians are well. I guess actually, there's distractions for everybody. There's distractions for pedestrians too. Because you know. have, have we just given up on the distracted driving thing, Jeff? Because I tell you, <clears throat> either I'm either on my bicycle or or walking. I, I I tend to walk to work unless it's 100 and 
whatever it is outside in Phoenix now nowadays. But but you look over and somebody's on their on their phone every time, and I don't understand why. Here we are. It's 2023. We've had cell phones for 20 years at least, ubiquitously. You know, they're everywhere, and people still continue to be on their phones. What? How, how have we just completely abandoned our moral outrage over that? Well, you you probably saw that uh, Governor Whitmer here in Michigan signed recently legislation to ban handheld devices in in vehicles. Um, joining, putting us, what is it, we're in the mid-20s now in, in states that have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's that's something. Um, you know, the, the hardcore advocates would say even that's not enough, that you, even Bluetooth, you're still distracted. And, and that's true, but I don't know that are you more distracted by using your phone and Bluetooth than you were over the years, you know, flipping in CDs or tuning your AM radio. Or eating French fries. Yeah, right. Exactly. All those things. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, there's been some kind of distraction since vehicles, you know, were made. So, um, mm. but but you're right. I, I think that that we accept that you just do that. And, uh, you know, when Ohio passed theirs, they built in a, a grace period where if police saw it as a primary enforcement issue, they would issue warnings for the first few months. Um, I have not checked in now that it's been uh, it's been several weeks since that legislation took effect here, um, how various law enforcement agencies are handling it. So that's something I'll have to look into. I'm curious about. I know, does Arizona have that law? I'm guessing they don't. It it does. It, it has a hands-free law here in Arizona. Okay. So it's one of the states. Mm-hmm. And yet you still see a bunch of people holding their phones, it sounds like. Absolutely. It, probably uh, most often not up to the ear on speaker or yeah. you know, texting at a stoplight, I think is another thing I see quite a bit. Yeah. I wonder if there's confusion about the speaker thing because it's still handheld, but they might think that's okay somehow, you know, but it's not. (laughs) Yeah. When you put it up to your ear, that's when you get really distracted. If you're just talking onto a speaker, it's not a problem. Yeah, exactly. So I mentioned to you that I I wanted to do something. um, Some of the podcasts I listened to do this, and I used to do this with Talking Michigan Politics years ago when I was a journalist and launched that before everybody and their dog had a podcast. Um, we do at the end of a segment, my partner then Ed Golder and I would each bring a conversation starter, um, a story that we had read, something that, you know, might have gotten by a lot of people that we just thought was interesting. Um, so you got one? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Uh... Well, think about it a minute and I'll tell you mine. It's this this story I heard about because it was a, a listener uh, submission on Slate's Political Gab Fest. So then I looked it up um, in the Alaska Beacon of all places. And it's this incredible story about students in Angoon who worked their butts off with a professional carver over the course of a year to build a dugout canoe and launch it. And part of it was that it was a war style canoe reminiscent of the late 19th century when the Tlingit people, peoples of the region, were bombarded by the U.S. Navy. Um, it's one of the more oppressive, repressive things that uh, in our country's history, and they've never been properly apologized to. So the students did this and launched it, got the whole community involved, and it is a ceremony uh, just to kind of, you know, 
honor that memory of what happened there and, and honor their culture and their history. And it's just, it's, it's, it was really cool. It was a, it was a chilling and, and moving story to read. And, um, the students, you know, did their, their, uh, cultural dances and songs as part of the ceremony. And, uh, I don't know, I just, I found it really moving and it's got a transportation element, right? Because it's a canoe. So, well, and our Navy attacked them. That is also something that you just don't see very often or hear about very often. Yeah. It's one of those lost chapters of, of history. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was just interesting history. So I think when I read this morning, Jeff was uh, actually out of Axios and it was uh, how there's a AI showrunner application that has just been rolled out and the demonstration of the AI showrunner allows somebody to type in a prompt and the AI bot will produce a, a uh, South Park short based on that story idea. And South Park and it, was not part of that. It was not. <laughs> it was not. And the, and the showrunner developers uh, promised that they are not doing a, a South Park, that this is just part of their demonstration. But it raises all kinds of interesting issues around what does it mean to actually produce content and it's in the context now of the ongoing strike with the actors and with the screenwriters and uh, the all that Hollywood is embroiled in regarding streaming and uh, creative development and and really the whole structure, the financial structure of Hollywood is 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 wrapped up in that. It just got me just turned around the flagpole on that one. I, I just couldn't quite get my whole brain around what is this really going to look like in four or five years? Yeah, no, I, I read it too, and I, I had the, this, the same thought. Say it's it's like anything, right? How do we harness it for its best and and minimize the worst? And that's going to be a very difficult thing, and it's going to it's going to create a lot of ethical dilemmas for a lot of people. I don't want to be a downer, but I haven't uh, seen a lot of evidence lately that we have the capability to kind of rein these things in, especially when a movie like Oppenheimer is getting ready to to you know run through the the theaters and. And what uh, what was started there, um, and and what it's become, I, I don't know. We hope for the best, I guess, and and look for opportunities to kind of use it in its uh, in its best intended purpose. Are you saying that we're not as uh, advanced on our Darwin scale as you'd like us to be? Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> Something like that, Jeff. Yeah. I'm very excited about seeing Oppenheimer too. I, I think it'll be, you know, it'll be uh, probably hard to watch for a lot of reasons but it's an important important history important to understand what was going on in the times and and and, and try to extrapolate from the context of the times to where we are now so yeah so thanks as always lloyd i appreciate it um always fun to hash things out with you any chance i can get to hang out with you jeff I, i'll take it so really appreciate the invite I'd like to thank you once more for tuning in to Talking Michigan Transportation. You can find show notes and more on Apple Podcasts or Buzzsprout. I also want to acknowledge the talented people who help make this a reality each week, starting with Randy Debler, who skillfully edits the audio, Jesse Ball, who proofs the content, Courtney Bates, who posts the podcast to various platforms, and Jackie Salinas, who transcribes the audio to make it accessible to all. 